Up. Oh, now I also have a green looking slide. Ah, sorry. Is that working now, Jolene? Yeah, okay. Sorry about that. Thank you. Wave earlier next time, Sean. <laughs> All right. Um, summary scriptures. I, some, this is one thing that fascinated me. Where is a good place in scripture that just encapsulates the gospel, just in a short spot? And that was actually kind of tough to come up with. But I did find it fascinating. There are, some, there are different places. You see one of them on the screen that does that in part. Uh, Titus 3, but when the kindness and the love of God... Actually, help me read that all together. When the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And if you look at these verses, you'll see there are, there are different components described. This is what the gospel is. This is the way... God worked towards us. It's his kindness and his love. Uh, talks about the Savior. He came, he appeared to man, became a part of us. It's through his righteousness, his mercy, his washing of regeneration. It's not our works. He gives us the Holy Spirit. We've been justified by grace. And then the very last phrase, we're heirs. It's pointing to something in the future, heirs of the hope of eternal life. That is one of the summaries. If you want another interesting one, go to Acts 2 and read the sermon that Peter preached, the first one, first sermon recorded after Christ's death. There may have been others. But when you look at that, it's not in one short little verse, but he preaches from the Old Testament and he preaches a gospel sermon. Uh, out of the Old Testament scriptures that he had. Uh, if you go to Acts 5, you have these words. This Peter talking to the Jewish leaders. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And it's interesting that just a few chapters later in Acts 7, Stephen has a vision as he's being killed, and he says, I see Jesus at the right hand of God. And it's at the tail end of him also preaching a sermon <clears throat> to them. One other one, I'd like for you to read this one with me as well. This is from 1 Corinthians 15, the beginning of the resurrection chapter. And once again, it's just a short little description of the good news of what Christ has done for us. So read all together, verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then the twelve, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So that's just a few summary things. We're going to develop that. I, I want to organize it this way this morning. <clears throat> to have a correct understanding of the gospel, I think we need to correctly understand these four components. This may not be exclusive, but I think we can generally put the gospel story under all four of these categories. First of all, the nature and existence of God, the intended and current state of humanity, and note those two words, the intended, what God wanted when he created us, and the current state. Then God's response to humanity's sin, and last, man's response to God's remedy. So I think those are, those are four ways that we can unpack this and organize it and think about 
how is God working? What is this gospel story? I pulled up the article in our church covenant. What, is, what do we say about God? And this feels very simplistic. It's not wrong. It's just short. And it feels like maybe a few other words could be added here. But this is what we say. We believe that there is but one God, eternal, infinite, perfect, and unchangeable, who exists and reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And maybe those words are pretty good. They're very broad. Uh, if you start thinking about what's it mean to be infinite and perfect, uh, unchangeable, you can go pretty far underneath any of those categories. But this is the God we serve. Infinite, eternal, perfect, unchangeable, creator, relational. Linford, I appreciate that part of what you brought out. God wants a relationship with us. It is so different from many religions in the world. Uh, it's, we have a relational God, a personal God, and yet infinite, so much beyond... He, he, he can so, he's so small, he can live inside of us, so big, he's everywhere, uh, however much sense that makes. He can be whatever, it's, but he does want relationship with humanity. He is a being so com incomprehensible that human vocabulary and understanding cannot entirely describe him. I don't think there are words enough to do that. You'll be familiar with this, omni, the omni words, omni meaning all. There's three of them we're pretty familiar with, and there's a fourth one I came across that I think is a very good addition to those omni words. I'd like for us just to look at them. We have the omnipotent, all-powerful description. Potent, meaning power, omni, all, it's all-powerful. There is nothing that God can't do. But I should qualify that and say there are things He will not do, because while He is capable of anything, He will not do anything that violates His character. He is always true to His nature, and all of that possibility remains within that confine of His goodness and righteousness. He's all-powerful. A few verses real quick here. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said to them, with this, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Uh, Jesus praying in Mark 14, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Luke 1, 37, in the story of Jesus coming to earth, for with God, nothing will be impossible. That was an angel. And then in Revelation 19, verse 6, we have this phrase, this scene in the future where God is being praised. A great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This is the all-powerful God who will be who is among us, he was among us as Jesus, and he continues to work accomplishing his will. He is omnipresent, omni-all-present. He is everywhere present. He is always present. When you say all-present, it has to do with time and place. All times and places. A few verses here. Hebrews 13.5 I will never leave you or forsake you. Verse 6 So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I feel like I missed some verses here. Maybe that's the only one I had. That is the only one I had there. There were other verses that I did not get into my notes. Omniscient, all-knowing. This has to do with knowledge. 
Job 34, 21, his eyes are on the ways of man. He sees all his steps. Psalm 147, 5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. There's no end to what he knows. Hebrews 4, 13, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 1 John 3, 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. That's a sampling of verses. God is all-knowing. There's nothing that he does not know. And here's the fourth word, not as common, but I'd like to add it. Omnibenevolent. He's all good. He is supremely good. He is all of these other things, but he is a good, righteous deity. He is not an evil, uh, malicious person, being, wishing ill on his subjects. That's not what he is. He is supremely good. He is righteous and holy. Matthew 19, 17, Jesus interacting with a person who came to him. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God, that, but one that is God. Romans 2, 4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. In Romans eleven twenty two, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. And that verse talks about both the, the righteous, holy aspect of God right beside his goodness. He is both. God can do anything, He is everywhere, He knows everything, and He is perfectly good. That must be understood to understand the gospel correctly. When you go to the arguments of agnostics and atheists and doubters, you will frequently find that they don't get this right. They have an incorrect understanding of God, and they believe they have reason for that. They, they don't see God with this picture. We need to keep rolling. What about man? He was created in perfection. He was ruined by choosing to sin. He became imperfect. He became subject to death, and we inherently carry a sin nature separated from God. That is a very, very short snapshot. I don't have the scriptures on the screen. I am going to read some of them. Uh, I'd like for you to hear this ruin that happened. Back in Genesis 3, after a perfect creation, we have this story. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, and I find this really fascinating, from a human perspective, in, in hindsight, us looking back, what the devil said next was actually true, but it was incomplete, and it was giving the wrong idea. Here's what he said, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That was true. It's exactly what happened. And they did not physically die the day that they ate. But there was another kind of death that happened. Sadly, terrible tragedy for humanity. Sadly, they did eat, and there were curses as a result. Listen to the curses Skipping a few verses in the text there, verse 14. First of all, to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle 
and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And this is a very key phrase. That's why I included it. Between your seed and her seed with a capital S. Jesus, the Savior. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In that phrase, we can see Already in this perfect garden, sin entered, God has a plan. He, has, he already knows where this is going. We're going to get to this in a little bit, talking about what, uh, some more about that God's knowledge of what was going to happen. The curse for the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, if we wanted to unpack that one a little, I'm not going to take time. It's fascinating thinking about that curse and what it implies that the perfect creation actually was. What was humankind like before we were cursed? All we know is the cursed side of it. To Adam, he said, <coughs> excuse me, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. <clears throat> In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. And there God says, you will die. You're not dying immediately, but you're going to end up going back to dust. Apparently that was not God's plan. It was not God's plan initially. He created a perfect, eternal being. So we became imperfect, subject to death, and all of Adam and Eve's descendants are born apart from God. We have a selfish, sinful nature. Love these little children. Do they need any training on how to be selfish and rebellious? No. As sweet and cute as they are, they got that figured out just by their nature. We have to train them what it's like to do good, to behave and do right. A few verses here. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.9, what then, are we better than they? Talking about Jews and Gentiles. Not at all. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And then one verse from Romans 5. Therefore, just as by one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. If you go back into the story of Genesis 3, you'll find... A very fascinating passage. There's a lot of information left unsaid. But when God confronts Adam and Eve for their sin, y'all remember the context? He's walking, Adam hears God's voice walking in the cool of the evening in the garden. I, I have to wonder, was that not routine that God would walk through the garden in the evenings and he would talk to Adam and Eve? And now they sin, and they hear God's voice, and their response is different. They don't have that communion. They run from him. They hide. They try to cover their nakedness. It changed. Spiritually, they died. But God had a remedy for man's sin, and he already knew the outcome at the beginning of time. Now, this is part of what we can't put into our human box. How can this eternal, infinite God, he creates this thing on earth and puts time into motion. And so it's like he creates this box. That's probably not a good way to describe it. He creates this parameter in which his creation lives and functions. But he's somewhere outside of this looking in on it. He's not confined by that. And because he was before that box 
of time happened. He will be after. He just is. I'm not really. It's, eternity is not before and after. It just is. So it's hard to think that way because we think timeline. But that's, that's who God is. So interesting uh, concepts that come out of this. God already knew about that. Uh, let's see. I don't have that on the screen. If you go to uh, Revelation 13.8. Actually, let's do this. I do have it on the next screen. Genesis 3.15, we already alluded to this. Uh, God told the serpent that there would be conflict between him and the seed of man, uh, the Messiah. He pointed to that already. And in Revelation 13.8, I've often found this phrase interesting. <clears throat> this is in the throne room of heaven, and John describes here, he sees a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. To me, that says that in God's mind, Jesus' story of working in humanity, coming to earth, being born of a virgin, living among men, dying. In God's way of thinking, way of thinking, I don't know, that doesn't seem quite right, whatever, God's perspective, it's as though it had already happened before the world was ever formed. God already knew this. Before the foundation of the world, the lamb that was slain. I stand in awe. It, God's story. How could you write a story like this? It's God's story of redemption. He knew. He knew that what was going to happen. And I'd like for us to look here a little bit. I, I'm not going to spend as much time on it as I wish, but just that piece of the perfect creation. I want to follow the timeline here. What did God, what was it like when God created man and put him in a perfect garden? I think that that tells us about what God really wanted. He wanted that kind of a perfect world and existence for mankind. He wanted that kind of an open relationship. And I think that's a little bit what heaven's going to be like. Once again, a perfect place where everything that man needs, enjoyment of relationship with his creator, that's where we're headed. And God's in the process of setting that right. Creation was ruined by sin, and in Genesis 6, God reset the world. You think about that, it was nearly 2,000 years. A lot of human history happened. We don't have much detail. We have a little window into it, but a very wicked world. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and all but eight people were destroyed in a massive flood. God said, let's start over with people, but it changed creation. Seasons changed, climate changed, even the food that man was to eat changed. And once again, humanity started from a family. Six chapters later in Genesis 12, the population of the world is once again fairly significant. And God chooses one family, the family of Abram. And he says, I'm going to reveal myself in the way that I work with this family. And that's what you have for the rest of the Old Testament. From Genesis 12 through Malachi, you have the story of God working with man, revealing himself to mankind. He shows the utter wickedness of mankind. He establishes the need for the Redeemer. If you read in Galatians and in other parts of the New Testament, Paul describes this very well where it's going from we have this holy God, this wicked mankind, and God uses the law to show our sin. And he's bringing us the need for a Savior. And then we come to Matthew to Jude, 
And we have God's redemption story for humanity. It's not that it's absent in other scriptures, but this is a story of Jesus coming to earth and what that means for humanity, and then Revelation ends up with the description of end-time events before this is all set right again, and we're back into a perfect place with Creator God. So here's the takeaway from this. God, we, we have a broken relationship with God. God wants to restore that, and He made a way for that to happen. So here is a really brief summary of that redemption story. It's going to miss components. It's going to hit the highlights. This is what God did to provide a way for man to end that broken relationship and come back to him. He sent his son to earth as a baby, born of the Virgin Mary. That son is Jesus. He lives among men, teaching, serving, healing them, giving himself. Then he dies a terrible death. Unjust trial, but willingly gives his life. He's a sinless person, the God-man, fully God, fully human, perfect, sinless. Then he rises from the dead three days later. Hallelujah. This is the fun part of the story. And after 40 days, he ascends to heaven. And that's where he is today, interceding for us at the right hand of God. But that's not the end of the story. He's coming back. And he's going to gather his followers to be with him forever. That is the nutshell view of God working with man. Hebrews 1.3, you've got to read this verse, talking about Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had himself, by himself, purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. I didn't focus on this. It's, there's too many pieces. I feel like I'm missing it. How did God create man? God created man in his own image. God intended for us to reflect his nature and character. We're different from the animal world. A lot of similarities. Technically, we're a mammal by scientific classification. But we're not just an animal. God breathed into humanity the breath of life. There's an eternal aspect to it. There's a conscience aspect to it. There's a spiritual aspect to it that is different from anything else in creation. So, man's response to God's remedy. Let's talk about that. God provided a way. What do we do with it? And this is one I accept. I don't struggle with it, but I don't really get it. I do, but I don't. Why did God have to make people as creatures of choice? He could have made us robots. He could have said, let's just make things that praise me, that follow me. But there's something of relational depth that happens when there's choice involved. When somebody chooses a relationship with you and chooses to love you, that's different than robotic relationships. Can you imagine friendship or marriage where it was all robotic? There's no choice? Nope, pair these people up, pair these people up. 
They just exist. I think the answer in that has, is the relational component. That's who God is. He created us as creatures of choice. He wants the very best for humanity. We're not forced to serve and love him. He gave Adam and Eve a choice in the garden. He created that very best world. He put them in it, and he gave them a choice. They didn't understand all the ramifications, I don't think, but he had warned them. Basic choice was, do you want to stay here with me, or are you going to choose your own way and suffer the consequences? God wanted the very best for humanity. The broken world is the result of sin, not God's fault. That's frequently where people go wrong. They blame God. No. God chose to create it that way. It's true. But it was man's choice to accept sin. And so God comes in and he offers a remedy for that broken relationship. And we described that uh, on the preceding slides. I'd like to go to verses that describe this. He's extending mercy and grace to us. He offers us the choice between eternal life and death. The choice is ours to accept or reject Jesus. John 3 is the passage I'd like to read. I don't have it on the screen. Uh, I'm going to read about five or six verses there. Starting with verse 16, you all may as well say it with me, but then I would like if you would know what the verses are that come after that. Altogether, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now listen to these words. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And right there is a key thing, belief in Christ. That is the key part of the remedy that God has for mankind's problem. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. God offers a choice between eternal life and death. He extends mercy and grace to humanity. He does that through Jesus, and the choice is ours to accept or reject him. I see I missed the screen I wanted to slide I wanted to have on the screen. So you'll have to listen instead of look. What is man's response? Walter Beachy told me one time in discussion, we were talking about salvation, he said he thinks that we should just remember the RBCs of salvation. We often think of the basics as the ABCs. He said, well, with Christianity and salvation, it's RBCs. It's repent, believe, and confess. Those are three significant components of that. I'm going to add to that just a little bit. Let's, let's talk about it, starting with repentance. What is Repentance. Repentance means that I make a change in my life. I say that that old broken way of living that's apart from God, I'm going to change that. I'm going to go the other direction. You've heard that. It's a 180 degree change in direction. We walk towards God, not away from Him. As you'll see later, we're actually walking with God. It's on that journey with Him. It's a change of life. Believing. If you read the Gospels and the, the story in Acts in particular, uh, 
questions asked, what must we do to be saved? Or Jesus interacting in the Gospels with people, do you want to be healed? We find this faith and belief component very, very strong there. Do you believe? And we must believe that, must have that faith in Jesus' work on our behalf. And then this thing of confession. This is one of those 50 sermons in here. What does that mean? Too often, I think we, we think of just the confession of sin, which is certainly right. We should do that. We must do that. But confession in a broad sense is just agreeing with God on everything. I agree with God that when he says that's sin, yes, God, that's sin. I'm with you. God says that's right. I'm with you, God. I'm going to do that. God says, Jesus is my son. He's the only savior. He's the only way to heaven. I agree with you, God. And I confess that Jesus is the Christ. He is my savior. You can apply that to anything. What God says, when I agree with it, that is confession. It's not just repentance and confession of sin. It is that, but it is more than that. Scripture talks about both of those. Uh, It talks about confession of sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It talks about if you're too ashamed to confess me before men and to identify with me, I will be ashamed of you before my Father which is in heaven. Confession is identifying with God and his ways and his plan. I agree with God about my sin and his righteousness. If you read in Acts 2, you'll find, or maybe it's 3, forgive me, it's the end of Acts 2, I believe. Peter's sermon. He gets a response from the crowd. Men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. And he goes on, Scripture says, and with many other words, he exhorted them. He continues to teach them. Baptism is also a component of this. If you look at the Old Testament ceremonial law, there were many things that they were required to do. There were sacrifices. There were offerings. There were trips to the temple there were, or the tabernacle. There were washings. There, were, there was just many things that happened. The Old Testament, uh, some of the, the early books describe that. Leviticus describes the, the duties of the priests and how that worship happened. You get to Christianity, and Jesus retained just a couple of ceremonial things, not anywhere close to the scope of the Old Testament ceremonial law. Baptism and communion are the two primary ones that he kept. There would be a couple of other things that you could say, oh, that's kind of ceremonial. Uh, But I'm going to say those are the two primary ones. So a part of becoming a follower of Jesus is to say, yeah, I will do that ceremonial thing. God wants us to be baptized when we come to him. I think one of the reasons for that baptism is he wants us to publicly mark our identity with him. Uh, Romans talks about us being buried with Christ in baptism. It is a a mark of identity. Uh, We become Christians. We follow Christ. We follow through with that to identify, I am a follower of Jesus. Which leads me to the last thing. It's repent, believe, confess, be baptized, And our Protestant friends, I think, frequently miss this, at least in practical ways. That is, I follow Jesus. There's a couple of things in greater Christendom that push against this. And I say this not as criticism of them, but rather as a warning to us that we don't fall in those same misunderstandings. The two things that I see in Christendom that push against following Jesus as a matter of daily life is either the once saved, always saved mentality 
where salvation becomes a one-time event. I said the right words at the right time, and I'm good to go. And that's their oversimplified uh, description of salvation. Now, many of them would not agree with the ramifications of that. Uh, they would, I've heard this said, at least in some circles, they would say, people that then don't follow Jesus, well, they never were saved. Okay, what, whatever. But that, that once saved, always saved, does have those ramifications. The other is a sacramental view, where we go through the right motions. Uh, this would be seen in the Roman church in particular, where people can go through motions throughout the week, they live their life, they come to the priest, they confess their sins, they say the right prayers, they take the sacraments, and they're good to go again. Those are the ditches, I believe. The true gospel is Jesus coming into the life of a person and transforming them from the inside out. Where our broken hearts our wicked hearts are changed. It's not just something we do, it's who we are. I become a follower of Jesus, a lover of God and His ways, and for the rest of my life, I walk with Him. I do that imperfectly because I'm human, and He's in the process of redeeming me. But that's my heart, that's my goal. I'm following Jesus. I'm going after him. Man's response is a lifetime commitment to follow Jesus. It's not compartmentalized. It's all the time. It's all of life. It's every situation. It's every relationship. doesn't matter if it's in the walls of your home, if it's in your business world, if it's in your hobbies. It doesn't matter. If you're a follower of Jesus, it affects everything. It affects the things you think. It affects what you do. It affects your life goals. And everything becomes subject to, I'm agreeing with Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. I'm identifying with Him, and I'm going to follow Him. Titus 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Does that describe you? Do you look at yourself as a special people that God is purifying for himself? That is amazing. That, that's who we are as followers of Jesus. That's how we ought to view it. When we break that out into compartments, we err, and we lose sight of what the gospel really is. I'm going to end there. There are other things I would love to develop and discuss, but you know, what does that mean to follow Jesus? We can talk a long time. We have responsibility to God, first of all. We have a responsibility to our families. We have responsibility to the church. We have responsibility to our unsaved neighbors around us. As we're following Jesus, that informs the way that we do all of those other things. God bless you all as you follow him, as you seek to live the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for today, for this glorious gospel that you've given us. It is so complex and so broad, and there's so many things in it, we can't possibly get it all covered. For sure not in one time. I don't know if in a lifetime. And yet you continue working and redeeming and changing. 
And I just pray for grace for us to follow you and allow you to transform us, to change us into your own image. We want to follow you in obedience in every way. Lord, I just commit each person here to you this morning. I ask that in every way we would be sensitive to your spirit, that we would choose to follow you. I pray that you would make us uncomfortable where needed, convict us of sin, comfort us when we're trying and we're following you. Give us grace and strength to follow you well. And I just pray that you would meet the need of each person here today, that you would bless them with wisdom in how to follow you. In the name of Jesus, amen.